Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, that through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which he has given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption which is in the world through lust. Before we begin our study of the word today, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful that we have your word because there is so much that you have revealed to us that would not be something that we came up with just on the basis of our own native intellect or experience, but that you have revealed to us that which we would not know otherwise and that which informs us of our purpose, our destiny. It describes for us all that you have provided for us and given to us in this spiritual life. And it gives us an appreciation for the fact that we have been given an exalted position in this dispensation in Christ and that we are destined to be elevated higher than the angels and to rule and to reign with our Lord when he comes in his kingdom. Father, all of this involves so much that is revealed in Scripture, but we need to understand it and understand its relation to the ascension and what Christ is doing in heaven today, that we may have a much more elevated view of your purpose for our lives. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me. To Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to move around a little bit in the text as we continue our study on the ascension and session of Christ. And what we're going to look at this morning is one facet of this. There are so many different facets to understand what is going on in this dispensation and with Christ at the right hand of the Father that I'm taking time to build the foundation. That involves looking at a number of different passages, that each of which gives us information about a different facet of what is going on. And another reason that I'm belaboring this is about at least half, if not more, of these points and these passages are terribly misunderstood today, and they are distorted and they are applied in illegitimate ways. And so it's important to work through what the Scripture says to make sure we have a correct understanding of the ascension, of Jesus in his current session, of the kingdom and what happened to the kingdom when the... uh, when the Jewish people rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and what is going on in this dispensation and how it relates to the kingdom, because there is so much that is taught wrong about this 
that we need that clarification. So let me just take us to our passage in Ephesians 4 and remind us of the context. Context is so important here. And verse 7 we read, but to each one of us. Now, the but there takes us back to what uh, Paul talked about in the previous six verses, which just focuses on all of the things that every believer has equally and in common in terms of our spiritual life. We all have been uh, given this exalted position in Christ, which is defined over in Ephesians chapter 2, the fact that we have been made alive together in him, we have been raised together, and we have been seated, that's the session, seated together in him. And so we have to understand more about that. And as part of that, these gifts are distributed by Christ. That's the interesting thing here because we normally think of the spiritual gifts as coming from the Holy Spirit. So that's one of the issues we have to look, examine along the way. Verse 8, he says, therefore he says, and we have a quote from Psalm sixty-eight, eighteen which is very important passage, and we have to understand how Paul is using that here. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, Paul takes from Psalm 68, 18, and he changes it because in Psalm 68, it's talking about Yahweh being taken up to the Temple Mount in that procession in Second Samuel where David takes the Ark of the Covenant in that tremendous, somber, uh, as well as um, uh, joyful celebration along the way. And every six to eight feet, he stops and there's another sacrifice. This must have taken a lot of animals and a lot of time. And it is a sobering celebration. And that means it's serious on one hand, but there's great joy and excitement because it pictured the victory of God over the Canaanites and the conquest of the enemies of Israel. Even though they didn't have all of the land yet, uh, it had come to this point, the high water mark, so far, and now it was a prelude to the establishment of the of the temple. And in the Old Testament, uh, God says in several places in the Psalms, "I desire Zion as my habitation." And so, this is a fulfillment of all that. It is a victory psalm that is applied to Yahweh, but here it is applied to Christ. And there, Yahweh receives gifts and tribute from the people, but here Christ is going to distribute gifts to his new people, the church. So those are just the kind of things that we have to work our way through. And we get an example here in verse 8 and 9 and 10 of how Paul explained the Scripture. He quotes the Scripture in verse 8, And then, as I do, he goes word by word in explaining what the text means. He says, uh, 
when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, that is now this phrase, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. We have to ask what that means. He who descended is also the one who ascended above all the heavens. Now, we really haven't looked at that phrase. We'll do that more next time, that we have these various depictions of Jesus ascending through the heavens to the throne room of God in his resurrection human body. He ascended... What does it mean? He also descended into the lower parts of the earth, and he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, until we all come to the unity of the faith. So here he's talking about the purpose for all of this. In other words, he goes from verse 7 to verse 12, six verses, to lay the foundation for this purpose. It is so, it's a very practical purpose, so that the body of believers in a local congregation will be unified on the basis of the doctrine that is taught in the scripture. So how do you face a congregation that has splits and divisions and has uh, various uh, cliques within it? You have to teach what you have in Christ uh, positionally that we have one faith and that also experientially we grow to a unity of the faith, but it's based on doctrine, not on emotion, not on feeling good, not on just having warm fuzzies with everybody else. It's based on the truth of, of the faith. So that's where we're going. That's, that's taking the overview, and that is helping us to understand what all of these details are. And what Paul does in so many places uh, he, is he pulls from multiple sources and ideas and weaves them together so that we can have this this full understanding of what it means to have unity in the faith. But if you don't understand the different threads, then you can't grasp the riches and the depth of this passage. So that's why I'm taking some time uh, to take us through this. So he starts off saying, To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Well, you ask, what are the questions? Well, what was Christ's gift? When did he give it? Well, that's the purpose of his quote, and he is applying Psalm 68, 18 to this situation. So we started off by just looking at some basics related to uh, the ascension, just basic verses. I talked about Mark and I talked about Luke, but the most complete one is in Acts 1, uh, 4 through 9, and I've skipped a couple of verses. And Jesus gathered the apostles together and told them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise. And that promise was the coming of the Holy Spirit. And that's integral. What we have in the church age with reference to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the ministries of the Holy Spirit is 
the result of that ascension. Why did Christ have to ascend before the Holy Spirit came, and what is the significance of that in terms of our own spiritual life? And so in this, he he tells them, you shall receive power when in the near future, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so what they, are, what they ask in the middle of this is, Lord, is this when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, we have to address this issue of the kingdom, and I'll do it just, just briefly. Most of you have been around here a while. Some of you haven't. The kingdom was a geophysical, or excuse me, a geopolitical kingdom on the earth that would be signified by Christ sitting on the throne, the literal throne of David in the sense that his ruling place was in Jerusalem. He is not on the throne of David now. We are in no way, shape, or form in any kind of kingdom other than the general sovereign kingdom of God over his creation. But that is not the messianic kingdom that they're talking about here. That is not the kingdom that was presented by Christ in his first advent. And we saw that after he had spoken these things, he's taken up and a cloud picturing uh, God and the angels received him, accepts him, uh, and goes out of their sight. Now this happened on the uh, east side of Jerusalem, east of Jerusalem, on the Mount of Olives. It would be just off of this uh, uh, depiction of uh, Jerusalem at the time of Christ. And we've seen this picture that this is, it's, it's not really one mountain in that sense. It is a ridge line that starts on the right and goes to the left. And they were taken by quite surprise as they observed Jesus suddenly take off and as the writer of Hebrews says, he ascends through the heavens. And so while they're looking toward the heaven, two men stood by them in white apparel who also said, Men of Galilee, why are you staring up into heaven? This same Jesus, okay, that tells us that this same Jesus in hypostatic union, the God-man, is going to return. He will come in the same manner. Now, that means he's not coming in the form of the Holy Spirit. That means he's not coming uh, spiritually in a spiritual form of the kingdom, but that he is going to come back uh, physically, observably, and come to the Mount of Olives. And we're going to tie all that together this morning. And as Zechariah 14.4 says that uh, in that day, that is when... The Messiah comes at the second coming. He will stand on the Mount of Olives. Now, we've studied this, that there's eight stages to the campaign of Armageddon, and this isn't the first place Jesus shows up. He's going to rescue the Israelites, the Jews, that have escaped Jerusalem when Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, you flee to the, to the hills. Well, they're going to end up in what is now Jordan, hiding out in that area around Petra because the scriptures teach that that in Isaiah 64 that the Messiah will return from Basra. That's, that's that area, and his garments are stained with blood. 
not because he's bleeding, but because of the battles that have just taken place to defeat the armies of the Antichrist who have trapped the, the remnant of Israel in those canyons uh, in, near, near Petra. And so then he brings them back, and in that, when he arrives at Jerusalem, coming from the east, he's going to go up the east side of the Mount of Olives. And so the text doesn't say when he lands on the Mount of Olives. It says when, he, uh, when his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. So he's proceeding up from the east side with his armies, and there's another group of the remnant that are trapped in Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will split east to west, giving them an escape route, and then he will destroy the armies of the Antichrist. So we looked at this in terms of the ascension and the background as to what happened to God's plan when the Lord Jesus Christ was rejected and crucified. Because the plan, as far as Israel knew, was the kingdom was going to come, the king would come and establish the kingdom, and then they would go on into eternity. But they rejected him. And that was our first point, that they expected a one-coming Messiah. And the way Old Testament prophecy is written, it doesn't distinguish much between some events. It's as if they are like an accordion, and it's squeezed together, and they're all right next to each other. But then if you take the accordion and stretch it out, you realize that there are there are time gaps between these different events. If you've ever driven out to Colorado or been backpacking and and uh, up in the Rockies or anywhere, you know, you look up at a mountain peak and you see another one and you think, oh, I can make that other one. But it takes you so long to get to the first one. And then once you go over a ridge, you realize there's another valley of maybe four or five miles before you get to that next ridge. So that's, that's what you see here. And so the prophets only saw certain events and not the time periods in between. And so... What we learn is that the kingdom is postponed when they ask that question in this slide. Is this when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He says, no, you're going to wait here for the coming of the Holy Spirit. So there's no, the kingdom is, doesn't, doesn't arrive. So the kingdom is postponed. There are only certain options, and one is that it didn't come at all. The second is that it partially came. This is a view called the already not yet view, and it's sort of here but not fully here, and that's not what's going on here at all. I reject that view. Uh, it was not canceled, but it was simply forth. It was postponed, and an unannounced, unforeseen, but not unplanned for dispensation intervenes. See, God knew in his omniscience that the Messiah would be rejected, but he didn't tell anybody about that because he wanted it to be a legitimate offer, a legitimate free will offer to the Jews. And if he told them, well, you know, you're not going to accept him, well, that's sort of front-loading the whole situation. So they didn't say anything about the church or the indi indicating their rejection. And so it's not unplanned for. God always knew what was going to happen, and the church age uh, was uh, the intervening period. The problem was, as we saw last time, the Jews expected the crown before the cross, and that what the Scripture says is that there is going to be the cross uh, before the crown. 
but they took it that it was the uh, crown, I mean the cross after the crown, and so they were looking for a political ruler to free them from Rome and not a Messiah who would pay for their sins. And we see that it, Peter refers to this when he says that the prophets in the Old Testament uh, were studying their prophecies and uh, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted, one, the sufferings of Christ, and two, the glories of Christ. And so we saw the passages like Isaiah 53, 3 through 7, which talks about the suffering Messiah, and also Isaiah 43 through 5, which talks about the glory of the Lord that will be revealed. And so they just didn't get this put together correctly. And so that's the backdrop for understanding this whole issue with the uh, the ascension and session. The third thing I pointed out, and I'm running through these rapidly, I've got about six major points, and we only covered, I think, four last time or three. John the Baptist, Jesus, and the disciples all proclaimed a message of repentance to Israel. And repentance means to turn away from your idols and to turn to God. It goes back to Deuteronomy 31 through 3, where God told Moses that when the people were scattered to all the nations, that when they turned to God, God would recover them from all those nations to which he had scattered them and restore them to the land. And that hasn't happened yet in that sense. I think we have a prelude to that with the various uh, returns, the various aliyahs that have taken place over the last 120 years, but it is um, uh, they've returned now in unbelief, and this Deuteronomy 31 through 3 is talking about a return in belief. I heard a rabbi, a conservative rabbi, give an exposition of that text in Deuteronomy 29 and 30, talking about the restoration of the Jews to the land, and he very evidently skipped 31 and 2 as if they weren't there. Nothing was said about the precondition of turning back to the Lord, but that's what the text says. So repentance means to turn uh, to the Lord. So John the Baptist has the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand in Matthew 3, 2, and this is the message of the forerunner that is uh, indicated by Isaiah in Isaiah 4, 3, so that's a, a fulfillment of prophecy. Then Jesus, from that time that John was arrested, began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in Matthew 10, 5 through 7, he sends out the disciples with the same message. But that message is going to change near the midpoint of his public ministry. That was the fourth point, that he's going to be rejected as Messiah. And he will tell the religious leaders that they have committed the unpardonable sin and the called the um, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so there, all the Gospels follow this pattern where there's the offer of the kingdom, then there's the rejection of the king, and that leads to the crucifixion of the king. And that was not clearly understood in the Old Testament. So there's a question now, what is going on? 
Well, in the Matthew twelve thirty one passage, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that is not that will not be forgiven isn't a personal sin. A lot of people worry about that. Can I commit the unforgivable sin? No, you cannot. Because this unforgivable sin here is a national sin on the part of Israel in rejecting their Messiah. And it was for their generation, and once they made that decision as the representatives of the people, just like we have, just like they had idiots who represented the nation and caused them to uh, reject the Messiah, we have representatives in Washington, D.C. who make other idiotic decisions. I think that communicates pretty well. That's what they, they were the representatives of the nation. So they are making that, uh, that decision. So, sorry about that, but I was getting pop-up messages on my screen. Um, so Jesus referred to them as offspring of certain, which offspring of serpents, which uses the same language that God used in Genesis 3.15, calling, you know, talking about the seed of the woman would step on the head of the seed of the serpent. So when he calls them the offspring of the serpents, he's really telling them they're the descendants of Satan, which he had done before. And we saw that there were various differences between what happens in Jesus' ministry before that event and after. Before, the miracles that he performed were assigned for Israel so that they would believe in him as the Messiah. Afterward, they were not signs for the people. They're done in private. They're signs for the disciples in order to teach and train them. Before, he taught the masses, and they did not have faith. And now he is teaching the disciples who had faith. Um, Before he told those who were healed, go tell everybody. Afterwards, he said, tell no one. Before he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now he no longer announces that because that kingdom program stopped. That's an important observation in Scripture. And today we have so many people that talk about We're doing something for the kingdom and doing that and doing this, and it's all a distraction. What happened in American history, I'm going to give you a brief rundown. In the mid-18th century, 1740s, there was the First Great Awakening. And one of the foremost preachers, if not the foremost preacher in America, was Jonathan Edwards, who was a Calvinist and he was a post-millennialist. And post-millennialism was not what the Purit- most of the Puritans believed in the 1600s in America. Those that came from England were pre-millennialists. But by the 1700s, they had become post-millennialists. That means Jesus doesn't return until after the kingdom comes in. So now there's a shift in thinking that, that somehow... And America is, they, they bring America in is God is going to bring in the kingdom through the Christians of America. You get into the Second Great Awakening in the early 1800s, and they shift the view of man and the view of God, and, and man is now perfectible, so man can bring in the kingdom on his own. They are optimistic. There's all of these things in the era of Jacksonian democracy that that America is, is going to uh, be the light for the world, and we're going to bring in the kingdom. But the kingdom, due to liberal theology, becomes secularized. 
And so pretty soon the biblical concept of the kingdom is just completely lost, and all you're left with is we're pursuing a secular utopianism. Does that sound familiar? So that laid the grounds for all this garbage that we see today. And so you see here all of these Christians today talking about bringing in the kingdom, and because they're so confused on doctrine, they're suckers for utopianism, for Marxism, for socialism, because they're trying to bring in a secular kingdom. That gives you your insight for the day. So Jesus pauses the offer of the kingdom, and he's going to be crucified. So our summary is the postponement of the kingdom called for a postponement of glory. Second, the postponement meant that the issue of the kingdom relates to the distinct plan of God for the church, for Israel and the church. Those plans are distinct. They're not the same. So with the kingdom postponed, God hits the pause button on Israel's time schedule, and he brings something else in, the inter-advent age, which is the church age. And third, uh, there's going to be an unforeseen departure, the ascension, and there's going to be a second return, and now we see that there's at least 2,000 years before the, between the ascension and the second coming. Now, that's what this looks like. We have this inter-advent age, uh, the church age, and we have to ask the question, well, what is the purpose of this inter-advent age? Because that relates to your spiritual life and my spiritual life and why God has us in this dispensation. Now, one thing that he says about this is in John six sixty-two and 63. He says... What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? And then he says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. So he immediately connects the ascension of the Son of Man to the coming of the Holy Spirit. He does this later in John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. This is exactly what he's talking about to the disciples when he tells them to stay in Jerusalem and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses, that's the result of the Holy Spirit coming, you will be my, my witnesses. And then what we find out is that the d- disciples are still confused about all of this and they're trying to figure out all of this and it's not too different from the people who are asking a similar question in John uh, twelve thirty four, And in John twelve thirty four we read, the people... Uh, answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. Because he just indicated that he'll be leaving. And so they're expecting the kingdom, and the kingdom will last forever. And so they say, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever, and how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And that's the question we need to begin to answer this morning. 
it's critical. Who is the Son of Man? Where does that title come from? And so it comes from Daniel. Now, this is a very important passage. You ought to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7, and we'll come back to this and cover it a couple of more times because a lot of this information is new. You need to hear it more than once, and so we'll make sure everybody gets this. But in Daniel 7, you have the first of several uh, visions that come up in the latter part of the of the book, and it ties into that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had earlier where he has the dream of the statue with the head of gold and the chest of silver and each of these things going from the head to the chest to the abdomen to the legs and to the, to the feet of clay and iron. Each of these represents a different kingdom. But in that image, it represents the kingdom of man as man sees it, that these kingdoms are valuable, that these kingdoms are, are impressive, that these kingdoms are wonderful. But in Daniel 7, we get a picture of these kingdoms as God sees them. And they are pictured as voracious beasts because they are not living up to their humanity. What is it that separates man from the animals? Genesis 1, 26 to 28, we are created in the image and likeness of God. The animals are not. They do not have that divine image. And so uh, they live, because of sin, they are living like beasts. And the political systems of the world are pictured as ravenous beasts seeking to control and dominate and devour the people. And so they are pictured here through a series of different beasts uh, that show up. And I go to, I'll skip, I'm skipping most of that. And we see all of the different king, kingdoms mentioned as you go through them. They're described as, a, as um, four great beasts, the first like a lion with eagle's wings. And then there's a second that's like a bear that's lopsided. And then the third one is a uh, leopard with uh, four wings and four heads. And then the last one is like an indescribable beast that's dreadful and terrible. And then um, there's a, uh, while Daniel is looking at his horns and contemplating this horrific beast, there's another little horn that comes up, and three of the first horns on this beast are plucked out by the roots, and this little horn comes along, along like the eyes of a man and a ma- mouth speaking pompous words. That's in verse 8. That's the Antichrist. And so Daniel then says, changes the scene, and he says, I, read, I watched till thrones were put in place. This is a heavenly scene. And the Ancient of Days was seated. This is God the Father. His garments were white as snow. His hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire, and a fiery stream issued and came forth from him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. So he's in the throne, and there are untold thousands of people. Are, 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 it doesn't identify them as people, but thousands before him, 10,000 times 10,000. And the court is seated, and the books are open. So this is a judgment scene. 
And then he says, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. So this is a picture of taking place during the tribulation period, the last seven years of, of Israel's timetable. And the pompous one is the, is the Antichrist. And the picture you see is this is near the end, and it's going to bring this judgment upon the Antichrist and his kingdom. And so Daniel says, verse 11, the second half, I watched till the beast was slain, and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. Now, if we look, take the time, we look at Revelation uh, 19, and this happens at the end of the campaign for Armageddon. And then he says in verse 13, and we need to get this time frame. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, uh, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. So he enters this heavenly scene. And he comes with the clouds of heaven, and that is often, angels are often depicted as clouds. And he comes before the throne of the Ancient of Days. And then it says, Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Now this is really important. Pay attention to that word then. You see, what we've seen in the previous uh, verses was the destruction of the Antichrist. We know that comes at the end of the tribulation, at the end of the campaign for Armageddon. So it's in that time frame we're talking about. We're not talking about the beginning of the church age that Jesus has given the kingdom. We're talking about the end of the tribulation period. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. See, the phrase, the title Son of Man for Jesus was his favorite title to use for himself. Constantly using that so the Jews would know exactly who he is. He is this one described in Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Now, what you have, the way this is arranged, you have what Daniel saw, and then you have the interpretation that comes up later. And in the interpretation, we get a clearer scene of what is going on here. And there we read, he, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High. That's the Antichrist. It's only called the Antichrist in one passage, but that's the term that is usually used. There's a lot of different titles for the prince who is to come. He says, um, he shall persecute the saints of the Most High, that is the tribulation saints, and shall intend to change times and law. He's going to mess with the calendar. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, that's one year, times, it's a dual, two years, that's three years, and a half a time. So this is the second half of the tribulation. But the court shall be seated. This comes at the end of the second half, the second three and a half years of the tribulation. And they shall take away his dominion. That's the dominion of the Antichrist. They'll take away, the court will take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High, 
That's talking about Israel here. The kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So Jesus will ascend to heaven. He'll be seated at the right hand of the Father to wait for this time. And it's at this time that we'll get back to it, that he will come and he will ask for the kingdom. So the question we should ask here is when is this taking place and how does it fit into Revelation? Well, in Revelation chapter 5, we have the second part of a heavenly vision that is at the just prior to the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. And I want to just focus in on what happens here. At the beginning of 5.1, John says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, if you trace that phrase through Revelation, the one who sits on the throne is always God the Father. It is never God the Son. The one who sat on the throne, and you see that in this passage, the one who sits on the throne has a scroll in his hand, sealed with seven seals. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? The scroll is basically a title deed to the planet. And so that now to open this, open it is to take control of the planet to establish the kingdom. And so they're asking, everybody's asking, all over heaven, who's worthy to open the souls? Who's worthy? And it's such a dramatic scene. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or, or to look at it. So I, John says, so I wept much. They're looking and looking for someone worthy to take the scroll, and he is just weeping because no one can take that scroll. And so then... One of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. That's what Daniel's talking about, is when the Son of Man comes to the throne of the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days, and he asks for the kingdom, and the Ancient of Days gives him the kingdom. This is that scene. So that tells us there's no kingdom yet. He hasn't asked for it, and he doesn't get it until the end of the tribulation. And this is when the elders break out in a song, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us. So that tells us that those elders are church-age believers because he doesn't redeem angels. You have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then the first verse, the next verse, which is the first verse of 6-1, John says, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. This is when he opens the first seal, and that starts the tribulation. So when you look at Daniel seven twenty-five to 27 what this is talking about is taking away the kingdom of the of the pompous one 
and then it is giving the kingdom to the Son of Man. Now, Satan has the right to the kingdom now. And this is seen in the third temptation of Christ. In the third temptation of Christ, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus didn't say, you don't have any right to that. You know, he didn't challenge it. He didn't say that. He didn't say, you don't have the kingdoms. Instead, he said, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. You see, the the authority on the earth was originally given to Adam in the garden. And when Adam sinned, he lost that position as the king of the earth. And Satan took it. And it is not until Jesus comes back to destroy the works of Satan that he takes the kingdom back at the second coming. So when he says, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? Where was he before? He was not on the throne of David. He was not in Jerusalem. He was in heaven with the Father uh, in his pre-incarnate state as the second person of the Trinity. So it is before he descended to the earth. And so in John 16, 28, he says, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. And again, I leave the world and I go to the Father. And in John 16, 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So the result of their rejection of Jesus is he's crucified, buried, and resurrected. The kingdom is postponed, and now the king is going to start another plan that will expand his base. And to accomplish this, um, he's going to have this intervening era. So summary, the question of why the ascension, what is its role in the plan of God and its significance for the church age? The Old Testament envisioned one coming, not two. The Jewish rejection brought many consequences, including a postponement of the kingdom, and now there's this unanticipated inter-advent age. So God is going to be doing something unique in this inter-advent age related to the role of God the Holy Spirit in the spiritual life of every believer. And that's what Ephesians 4, 7 to 11 is focusing on. And it's all related to training and equipping saints to do the work of the ministry. It's not related to having a good time together. It's not related to getting together and singing for 45 minutes and having a 15-minute sermonette that barely uh, talks about anything biblical. It's all about being trained and equipped to do the work of the ministry in this in this church age. So I'm going to skip a couple of those slides and talk about, actually, I want to skip to one last thing. We'll come back to the seven things we need to note when I get back to this next week. But I want to take us to uh, Old Testament passage. And that's in Ezekiel 9.3. 
Oh, shoot. I was there, and I've got to go back to it. There it is. Okay. This is what, uh, this vision, we're going to close with this. This vision that Ezekiel had. And God takes him up so that he can see the temple mount. And in 9.3, we're told, now the glory of the God of Israel, where did it reside? It resided between the cherubs on the Ark of the Covenant. But what happens? He said, the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man, that is, you know, God calls to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. This is the prophet. So he sees that the glory has moved to the threshold of the temple. And then in 10.4, he says, Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple, and the house was filled with the glory, and the court was filled with the glory of the Lord. And then in verse 23 of chapter 11, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain which is on the east side of the city. So the glory departs, leaves the Ark of the Covenant, goes to the threshold, goes out the east gate, crosses the Kidron Valley, and goes up to the mountain on the east, which is what? The Mount of Olives. You sense a pattern. So it moves this way, going east, goes up to the Mount of Olives, and then goes to heaven. What does Jesus do? He goes, crosses the Kidron Valley, goes up to the Mount of Olives, and ascends to heaven. But in his prophecy of what will happen in the, uh, in the kingdom when the glory returns, in Ezekiel 43, 1 through 3, Ezekiel says, After he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kabar, and I fell on my face. So what is happening? He is seeing the return of the glory of the Lord to the millennial temple. And so we go back to Acts 1.11, where the angel said, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Where was he? He was on the Mount of Olives. He went up and was received into heaven. But he's going to return in the same way, to the same place. He's going to come down to, and he will be standing on the Mount of Olives, and then he will cross the Kidron, and he will enter his city from the east. You know, one of the silly things that people do, is if you stand on the Mount of Olives and look toward where the east gate was on that side of the temple, now, of course, it's the Dome of the Rock up there, and in front of that gate, the Arabs have a cemetery, huge cemetery, because in their super ignorant superstition, they think that because a cemetery makes it unclean ground that the Jewish Messiah can't enter Jerusalem because he would walk on unclean ground. That's the story. 
So where's Jesus now? Psalm 110.1 says that he ascended to heaven, and the Lord, that is Yahweh, God the Father, said to my Lord, God the Son, sit at my right hand. How long? Until I make your enemies your footstool. When does that happen? At the campaign of Armageddon. The whole tribulation is making his enemies his footstool. And you see Revelation 3.21, as this is the end of the last of the seven letters to the seven churches, there is a promise, as in all of them, to those who overcome the challenges and grow to spiritual maturity. He says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. See, he didn't sit on his throne yet. He doesn't sit on his throne until he returns at the end of the tribulation and establishes his kingdom. Until then, he is waiting, waiting, and he will get, reach that point where he can ask the father for the kingdom and the Father will take the kingdom from the Antichrist, give it to the Son, and the Son will come down, uh, will have that title deed, the scrolls will have been opened, the whole of the tribulation is all that is needed to deal with sin among angels and among men and to bring judgment on the earth and then cleanse the earth for the establishment of the kingdom. And so that gives us a lot of the framework we have to go back to look at other passages. We have to take more time with both Daniel 7, Psalm 110, and Psalm 2, and a couple other passages before we can tie all these things together. But that's the exciting thing about passages like that. It just gives us a fresh understanding of what God is doing, that he's in control and he's working out every detail, and it doesn't matter the nonsense we see in the devil's world around us. God is still in control. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be assured and confident that you will defeat evil and you will destroy the works of the devil and that it won't be pretty. And you have held your hand back during this church age because you desire that as many as possible will come to an understanding of the gospel and trust in Christ as Savior. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study these things and to dig into your word and to understand your plan and purpose. But it tells each of us that we have a vital role to play in this church age in preparation for our destiny to rule and reign with Christ in the kingdom. And so, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with to live today in light of our future role. And, Father, we pray that any who is uncertain of their destiny after death, that they would come to grips with the fact that death could come at any time and that it is a desperate need for each of us to trust in Christ as our Savior that we might have that free gift of eternal life. And we thank you for this. In Christ's name, amen.